And good to see, yeah, I like seeing your faces this morning. And I had the thought as, as I was singing with my mask on, it's just, it just makes things a little more muffled. And so if you want to like give me, give, give me some amens or, oh, that's good, you know, if you got a mask on, just double the volume so it's, you know, so it can reach up here. But it's good to be here. We are entering into August, so a bunch of, you know, moving trucks and move-ins happening and things changing around town in this interesting 2020 year. And we are, this week and next week, wrapping up this kind of theme we've been doing all summer long that now matters later. And looking at how, how our lives or what happens in our life right now not only affects now, but it affects later. And today we're going to talk about something that we hardly ever talk about, especially on a Sunday morning, but it's related to the whole idea of end times and the second return of Jesus and where is history going and what's that all looking like. And so there's, you know, I don't know about you, but I've been hearing more people with all the, the chaos and tumult and upheaval in our culture. You know, it, it, there it, inevitably when things are tough, I hear more people saying, oh man, maybe Jesus is coming back soon because things are really rough. And so we're going to look at this idea of not so much the details of that, but the idea that the church wins in history, which is actually one of the distinctives. It's on our website of like, what, what does Bluemont really stand for? We really hold strongly to this idea that the church wins in history. And so to kind of illustrate this, I told the story last year, but it's the best story I could think of. Most of you probably weren't here that, that time. So Last year, I was driving down I-70, heading west to Topeka, and there were those signs that say, you know, lane ends ahead, merge right. And so, all the cars start lining up, and there was a long line of cars going slowly that I could see that was coming up on. And as I was getting ready to move to the right lane, I saw one car in the left lane just keep on zipping along merrily in the left lane. And you always, you know, the question like, oh, are they like just a bum, like trying to just get ahead and then cut in and, you know, cheat in line, cut in line. But this thought went through my mind like, maybe the lanes aren't actually merging. Maybe this, this, I knew that construction had been going on for a long time and I, it might have been a Saturday, I'm not sure, but I, the thought went through my mind, maybe that car knows what they're talking about and maybe that construction's over and now it's two lanes up ahead. And so, I decided to follow the little car that was zipping along in the left lane. And it was great. Because sure enough, both lanes were open all the way through. And so dozens and dozens and dozens of cars are grinding to a halt, eking along on the right side. But my buddy and I just came on through. And we won on I-70 that day. And so why are you telling the story about this happy thing that happened on I-70? Well, because the narrative you believe about the future determines how much freedom and victory you live in. A lot of times, now, there can be a negative story. I'm not saying like we should just be like stick our head in the sand and, you know, sometimes the lanes really do merge and you should get in the right lane. But oftentimes we may be believing a negative narrative about our life or about the world, about history, that causes us to act in a way that actually makes us live constricted instead of in the freedom and victory that God has for us. And that's really the, the truth. A lot of times there, there are many false narratives 
that have come about that uh, the people view the world, they view history in such a way that brings fear, that brings constriction, that brings a defeatism that is different than what God has for us. And a lot of, uh, many of these ideas that have really influenced the world a lot came about in the middle of the 1800s. In the middle of the 1800s, there was just a, an outburst of, of false ideologies, false religious ideologies. And there, uh, I think they were inspired by spiritual forces that were trying to, to take people away from, from a relationship with God and the true freedom that he has for them. So there were ideologies like, like Mormonism, which I've just like, had a couple of conversations lately with Mormon friends. And, you know, usually think of Mormons, it's like, oh yeah, family values and good people. But that may be true. But the actual narrative of Mormonism is really different than Christianity. Mormonism teaches that God is a son of a God, who was a son of a God, who was a son of a God. He's, he's not the eternal creator God. And Mormonism teaches that we can become as great as God or even higher. So that's, that's not true, and that's a lot different than the real story. So Mormonism came about, some dude, Joseph Smith, had this spiritual encounter and came up with this, this really like very, very involved story that has led millions of people astray. The, the whole Jehovah Witness false narrative came about in that time. Christian science came about in that time. And those are ideas that most, um, most Christians would say, you know, that historically those are, those are considered cults or false teachings. There was another idea that came about that has influenced the church, especially the church in America, a lot that I think was also a false idea inspired by a lot of spiritual powers that wanted to take people out from what God has for us. But it's, it's much more like kind of enmeshed in our, in our way of thinking. And it was pr first proposed, it was an idea that had never been around for the first 1800 years of church history. But this whole like theological system known as dispensational premillennialism. And I'm not going to go into the details of this, but except to say that there were a lot of ideas that when we think of end times and the second coming of Christ, those ideas have become so normal in our culture that we just assume that's what the Bible teaches. And so some of the things that were promoted by this, this, this system of thinking that, again, had never been around before, and probably the part of it that's the most untrue or bad foundation was the idea that God has different plans for Israel and the church. It was the idea that God had a plan to bring his kingdom to the world, and that was through the nation of Israel. And so then he came and sent, Jesus came as the Messiah, the king, and, but the Jews rejected him. And so God had to go to like, oh man, they're not following along, so here's plan B. Plan B is I'm going to like open the gospel to the rest of the world, and this is the church. And this is kind of what's called a parenthesis in history. It's like this is, history is moving this way, but er, things didn't go so well. So now here's the church, and they're going to live for, do what, you know, God's going to do good things with the church for a certain time in history. But then the real purpose of history is, to, is for Israel to be the kingdom of God. And so ultimately that's what's going to happen. So ideas were promoted that, that you know, a lot, but I don't want to go into it too much. But a lot of really emphasis on, on Israel differently than how the Bible teaches in the New Testament. 
things like an emphasis on the rapture, um, an emphasis on like, hey, the great tribulation is coming and things are going to get really, 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 really bad and we need to be scared of that. Um, what else am I missing? Uh, I don't know. That's, oh, the Antichrist. You know, a lot of just these, these ideas came out as like, that's what we really need to be on the lookout for. And that's kind of where history is going. And the general idea that the world is getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And the God's plan is just to, to rescue people out of this bad world and kind of rapture them up to heaven to escape the brokenness before it all burns and is destroyed. That's kind of the general idea. And there's really a, a pessimism and a negativity about this. In fact, some of the books, um, and back in the 70s, there were some really popular books promoting this that sold millions of copies. Um, a guy named uh, Tim LaHaye, not Tim LaHaye, he wrote the books in the 90s. The Left Behind series was, was similar vein of thought. In the 70s, the, the books were Late Great Planet Earth and Satan is Alive and Well on Planet Earth. So, I mean, it's just kind of like, yeah, Eddie's laughing. I think it's, it's like the idea is like really things are getting worse. This planet, the late great planet Earth, it's just going to blow to smithereens, and Satan is alive and well. Here, now, the Bible actually says that Satan is bound, and he's been defeated, and Jesus is alive and well on planet Earth. And so, in times like now, when there's a lot of upheaval, and things are being shaken, it's very, it's always easy, but it's especially easy to go into this view of like, oh man, the world is just falling apart and the end is near, and man, we just need to like hold on and just hope to, hope to get out of this thing. But what is wrong with this story is that it's not the story the Bible tells from beginning to end. And there's a principle in the Bible, there's a principle in interpreting the Bible, the, what's called rules of hermeneutics, how you understand and interpret the Bible. The principle is that you always... The you interpret the unclear things from the clear things. So there are things in the Bible that are very difficult to understand. There are a lot of books of the Bible. There are Old Testament prophets. And the book of Revelation, the end of, of the Bible, is the most difficult book in the whole Bible to understand. It's full of, of allusions to the rest of the books of the Bible. And it's this whole style of literature that's called apocalyptic literature that uses lots of symbolism, and word pictures and imagery to represent things that are going on. And so there are parts of the Bible that you really have to understand the rest of the Bible and to, to understand what's being said there. But there are, most of the Bible is not that hard to understand. I mean, we need the Holy Spirit to help us, but there's a lot in the Bible that is very clear. And so there's a rule of interpreting the Bible. You always start with the clear, and then when you come to the things that are less clear, you have an anchor in what is obvious and clear to sort through the rest of that. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so I just want to go through quickly a few of the passages, passages in the Bible that talk about the, the victorious, um, that it's, we shouldn't be pessimistic about the world. We shouldn't be pessimistic about what God has for the world. There is evil, and there, are, there is real evil that we don't take lightly. But we should have a confidence that God is expanding his kingdom in the world through his people, through the church, 
through history. Okay? You guys tracking so far? I, mean, I kind of get nervous because this stuff is like so, you know, it can be out there. But we're going to just look at a few of these themes. At least, uh, even before I look at the first one, the first chapter of the Bible, we're not going to look at that, but just allude to it. When God made, first page of the Bible, God made Adam and Eve and said, hey, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and govern it. So we see God made the world, and he called it very good, and he put people on the planet to, to govern it and to extend God's goodness in the world. We see in Genesis 12, after people had, had sinned, and there was a lot of evil in the world, God called a man, Abraham, to be part of his agent of transformation in the world. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, we, we see his call. And starting verse 2, actually, God spoke to Abraham and he said, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. There's the, the bottom line of that, the last line. Hey, I'm calling you. I'm going to expand your people throughout the world. And every people, that's like every people group, every ethnicity, every culture, every nation, every culture in the world is going to be blessed through you because I'm building my people through you. We're told in the New Testament, in Romans 4, that this promise was not only to Abraham as the father of, of Israel, the Jewish people, but we're told in, in Romans 4, 13, that he's the father of everyone who believe in Jesus. So these promises are for all believers, that God calls all of us to be his people, to make our name great, to, make, to do something great through us, and then through us to bless all the nations on the earth. And in Romans 4, it also says that the promise to Abraham was that he would be an heir of the world. And so, sometimes we have the idea that, like, oh man, you know, the, the devil's getting the world. But the message of the Bible is that God gets the world, and it's through his people that the world is the inheritance that he has for us. In Isaiah 9-7, there's this prophecy about the coming Messiah, about Jesus. And in the middle of this prophecy, we're told that of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So it's saying that from the time that Jesus showed up on the scene, and his message, when he showed up, he said over and over again, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God has come. He was bringing his kingdom into the world through his life and death and resurrection. And we're told that from that time, God's kingdom would continually increase in the world and throughout history. And we have a little picture here that we've, we've come up with. It kind of shows the, the picture of this. Um, so at the beginning, God made the world. He gave us the creation mandate. We sinned, we fell, and not only us, but the world went into, into disorder and chaos because of that. And for hundreds of years, there was futility because of our sin. We, were, we weren't able to come out of that. But in the midst of that, there was also promise, like this prophecy that God said, hey, I'm going to send my Messiah, my King, who's going to change things and bring his life, bring his kingdom into the world. And from the time of Jesus, the first advent, we see God's kingdom came, and then ever since then, of the increase of his government and peace, it is, it's not ending. It's like the stock market. It just keeps going up. 
Now, it doesn't mean like every moment, you know, there aren't bad things that happen, or that it doesn't mean that, that every nation is going to stay faithful or be part of that, but overall, God's kingdom throughout history is, gonna, is increasing and growing. That's what we've seen since the time of Jesus. We've seen the gospel go into all the world. We've seen we go from a handful of people to now billions of people in the world call themselves followers of Jesus. We see more peace. We see less war in the world now than ever before. I know that's shocking to believe, but there is way less destruction and warfare than there's been. There's way less poverty, disease. God's kingdom has grown. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not all that other bad stuff. We're still in a battle, but God's kingdom is growing. Ultimately, Jesus will come back, the second advent, and fulfill and complete this process of transforming the world. And we'll live on in eternity with, in a renewed earth, with heaven and earth merged together, and God fulfilling that, that process. We see that, that promise in Isaiah 9-7. In, in another prophet, Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2-14, we're told that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In Psalm 110, this is actually the passage of the Old Testament that is most frequently quoted in the New Testament, that the apostles loved this passage. They saw it as so important to describing what was happening with Jesus coming and his mission for the world. And in Psalm 110, it says, The Lord says to my Lord. So David uh, wrote this psalm, and he saw a picture of the Father speaking to Jesus. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So this is a picture of after Jesus rose from the dead and then ascended to heaven, the Father said, hey, sit down at my right hand. Take your throne. Hey, well done. Mission accomplished. You defeated the enemy. You brought my salvation, my life into the world. Sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So we see that the enemies of God, evil was defeated at the cross, but there's still a process of that being completed. It's kind of like in World War II. When D-Day happened, the Allies broke the back of the Nazis. When, when, when they took the beach at Normandy, World War II was going to, the, 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 the determinative, I think that's a word, determinative victory happened that day. The, you could say the war was won. But the armies still had to go throughout Europe and the Pacific and complete the process. But the back of the enemy was broken. And so that's what happened. When Jesus died on the cross, he defeated the devil. He rose from the dead. But he's still given his army the mission of carrying out that victory completely. So he says, sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a fistful for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. And so a scepter is what the king uses to extend his reign. Zion is, this is, means the, the, is that the mountain where the temple was on. It's a description of God's people. Um, so it's saying God will extend your scepter through your people, through your church. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. So that's what's going on in the world today. God's um, bringing his victory into the world through his people, and he's raising up willing troops who are part of this, part of this battle. In Matthew, uh, Matthew 5, I love this. Jesus was speaking to his people. He said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You're the light of the world. 
A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So Jesus tells his followers, you're salt and you're light. What does salt do? I heard him. I'm hearing masked murmurs, I think. I can't quite. Preserves, yes. Good, it preserves food that is put on, especially in biblical times. You didn't have refrigeration, but you put salt on, on meat to preserve it. And it also makes it taste better, right? Makes it salty. So salt is not just for itself. Salt is for something else. And so Jesus tells his people, hey, you're, yes, I have good stuff for your life, but you, your calling is to bring preservation and life to the world around you. The church actually is for the world, not just for itself. You're the light of the world. When a light gets brighter, the room gets brighter, right? You can't have a room getting darker while the light is getting brighter. And so if the world is getting darker, that speaks something to, okay, wait, we are not shining the way we're called to be because it's the light's job to bring light into the world. Um, get more, more into that in a little bit later on. Uh, Matthew 28, the great, or Matthew 16, Jesus spoke to Peter, and he said, you, I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. That's pretty awesome. This is saying, hey, Peter, I'm building my church on you, and those who like, believe in me, as you just said, you believe that I'm the Messiah. Everyone who believes in me, I'm building my church on people who believe in Jesus, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. It's important to realize that gates are not offensive. Gates don't have wheels, right? Gates don't attack anybody. The gates of a city were defensive, and they were attacked by something else. And so it's the church's job to attack the gates of hell, not to be afraid of what the gates of hell are doing to us. Uh, Matthew 28, after G- right before Jesus went to heaven, it says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I think that's so interesting that it's kind of encouraging to know that the disciples were a lot like us, right? Like, there always was room for doubt. No matter what God was doing, their doubt is such a powerful thing that we have to deal with. And so here Jesus has died and risen from the dead, and he's appearing to them, fulfilling all his promises and letting them touch his hands and see him. But people are still wrestling with doubt. Because no matter how real God is, it's still we have the ability to be doubtful. But it doesn't stop there. It says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. This is Jesus giving his, his mission to his disciples. He says, Hey, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. And I'm with you always as you do this. And this is huge because this is, this is a huge commission. Jesus is telling his followers, hey, you together are called to disciple the nations. That means to, to bring the gospel to people 
in all the world, and then to make them disciples, help them be wholehearted followers of Jesus. And it's not only an individual thing, but it literally is disciple nations. You're called to change nations. You are called to see cultures transformed. And all throughout history, the followers of Jesus have understood this. And where the gospel has gone, nations have been transformed. Slavery has ended. Women have become honored. Children have become valued. There's been freedom from dictators and authoritarian governments. There's been political freedom. There's been economic flourishing. There's been a realization that we take God's word we can apply it to every area of life and bring flourishing that God desires in our nations. And, you know, sometimes when I hear, when, when we hear the idea of, like, Jesus um, is coming back, again, it's the idea of, like, oh, man, things are really, really bad, so Jesus is just going to rescue us out of here. But God is more like my dad, who, if you can imagine... Um, if, you, or if my dad gave me a job to do, if he told me, hey, I want you to mow the lawn while I'm gone. I'm going on a trip. I want you to mow the lawn. My dad did not want me to try to calculate when he was coming back. He didn't want me to, to get overwhelmed by how fast the grass grew and how difficult the job was. And there might be snakes out there, so it's scary. No, he just wanted me to do the job. And that's how it is with God. It's like he's given us a job. He's like, I want you to mow the lawn while you're at it. Fix up the house and get ready for a party that you can invite a lot of people to and share my love with. And instead, we're like, oh, my goodness. You know, it's easy to be like, oh, man, there's like Antifa. I don't know. Like, they, they might take over or something. It's, we, we get overwhelmed by, by all this stuff instead of like, no, God's given us a job to do. And he is wanting to come back and find the job done. So that's really what we need to, to focus on. In Ephesians 3, 10 and 11, we're told that God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So through the church, through God's people, being transformed, coming together, building a divine community with one another, extending hospitality, spending kindness, different kinds of people coming together. God's church is the answer for the world that shows spiritual powers in the heavenly places, God's wisdom, like nothing else. So we see, and I, you know, I know I went through a lot of scriptures, but I feel like I'm competing with you know, all the other stuff we're hearing in the media and from, from all these other voices. Like, man, there's just the consistent, clear theme of scripture is that God has a plan for the world it's a victorious plan to bring his blessing into the world, and he uses his people as the agents of transformation. So let's look at one passage. We're going to just look at one more passage here that's a little bit trickier, a little bit more difficult to interpret. We're not going to look at the super hard ones, but one of the parables Jesus told. The parables were stories with a meaning, and the word parable literally means hidden. So there's something hidden in this that needs to be like, worked out and sought out to find the answers to what it's saying. So Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30, this is what's known as the parable of the, the, the good seed and the weeds, or the wheat and the tares. 
So Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. Well, that's a bad enemy. Farmer plants the field, but then this enemy comes and throws this other seed in the field. Probably there was a weed in, in ancient Palestine that was like, kind of looked like wheat um, seed. So maybe that was, it seemed like that was maybe it. He put it in the field and then went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. Let's see the next slide. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Okay, interesting story here. Fields planted with good seed. Enemy puts bad seed in it. As the wheat matures and gets the, 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 grain, the heads of grain on it, you also see there's, there are weeds mixed within this crop. So the servants say, oh man, what do we do? Should we like pull up those weeds? And the owner says, the farmer says, no, because you'll damage the wheat too, but wait till the very end. We'll just harvest it all at the same time, and then we'll separate the good seed from the bad seed. Now, what does this mean? What's this talking about? Well, it means that in history, there are the seed of God's seed, God's people, who are changed by hearing the gospel, responding, following Jesus, having allegiance to Jesus, who grow in the field, and ultimately we're harvested, and the final judgment, which we're going to talk about next week, we are, we're seen as, okay, these are my people, and there's an eternal reward, and living with God for eternity. There also is bad seed that grows with it, and there is a harvest at the end of history, and there is a judgment that's not a good judgment. There's a, a judgment of, of punishment or of consequences, or living out the choices that people made in their time on earth. And so when I, I remember reading this as a kid and kind of growing up with kind of the, the pessimistic view of, of end times. And when I read that, I had this idea that like, wow, the weeds really like, they're, they're taking over. Like they're, man, the weeds are really like, taken over. But it doesn't say that. It just says there are weeds in the field. And so when we use the, the clear to interpret the unclear, it, we, are, we can not have this idea that maybe I had as a kid is like, well, it's 90% weeds and 10% wheat. They're like, no, there are weeds, but God is growing his people throughout history. And it's if you think about, if those of you who have yards or are farmers, and we have, we have a yard, and the best way to deal with weeds in your yard 
is to have a thick stand of grass. The more grass you have, the less weeds you have. Now, so you can focus on like trying to pull every weed, but if you just pull all the weeds and leave like big open areas, the weeds are going to grow right back. But the more the grass is cultivated, the less, the fewer weeds there are. And it's, I believe it's similar, like you think, does God like, is, is God a good farmer? Is God going to like harvest his crop at the end of history and take it to the market? And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, we, we can't give you very much money because there's, there's so much bad seed in here. Is God going to be able to have a successful farm? I believe the answer is yes. And that's the answer, the theme we see all throughout Scripture from, from Genesis to Revelation. Um, but it requires, like, to take, like, okay, God, what, is, what's, what are you like? What are the themes that we see throughout the Bible? And how, how do we apply that to the more difficult things to understand? Um, this has been the historic belief of the church, really, throughout, throughout history. And there are a lot of nuances and you know, we don't say, hey, you have to have this certain, like, narrow understanding of end times to be part of our church or to be a believer. No, there, there are a lot, there's a lot of mystery. There's a lot of unknown. There's, man, it's, it should be very humbling. If, if we think that we got it figured out, then we're in deep trouble because it's difficult to figure out all the details um, in the Bible. But there should be an overall confidence that God is expanding his kingdom and he's using his people, he's using us in the mix. Uh, one of the church fathers, Tertullian, in the first few centuries of the church, he, he, talked, he was talking about this, and he said, at a distance they oppose us, but at close quarters they beg for mercy. This is just the overall victorious spirit, talking about how the gospel goes out in the world, and it defeats the powers of evil. Um, St. Athanasius was another early church father. In 319 he wrote that, since the Savior came to dwell in our midst, not only does idolatry no longer increase, but it's getting less and gradually ceasing to be. On the other hand, the Savior's teaching is increasing everywhere. When the sun has come, darkness prevails no longer. Any of it that may be left anywhere is driven away. So also, now that the divine, divine epiphany, or the, the coming of, of, the, of Jesus, the divine epiphany of the Word of God has taken place, the darkness of idols prevails no more, and all parts of the world in every direction are enlightened by his teaching. So this was the understanding of the early church that Jesus, his victory was so powerful and he had brought his kingdom to them that as they brought the gospel to the world around them, it was changing things. And it was soon after this actually that the, the emperor of the Roman Empire, who, which had opposed Christianity for his first few centuries and persecuted Christians, the emperor actually converted to Christianity and the whole Roman Empire became officially Christian. And so that is, that is the nature of the church to transform the world around us. Charles Spurgeon was a great preacher in the, in the 1800s. And he said this, he said, I myself believe that, Jesus, that King Jesus will reign. The idols will be utterly abolished. I expect the same power which turned the world upside down once will still continue to do it. The Holy Spirit the Holy Ghost would never suffer the imputation or the disgrace to rest upon his holy name that he was not able to convert the world. Christ will have the whole earth. I love that. Now this is someone who understands the heart of God, who understands what he's given us as his people, who understands, hey, yeah, it's, it's, it's an intense battle, but King Jesus is reigning 
and he will reign, and he's going to have the whole earth. And we get to be part of that process. And that's really, you know, where does this, like, okay, ideas matter, and the ideas that we have matter. So where does, where does this matter? I think I really want to just bring it home to it matters in us seeing, like, that it's the church that is God's agent, of, along with the Holy Spirit, along with, with King Jesus on his throne. We are part of this process, no matter what's going on in the world around us, of bringing this about. Um, why does it matter? I want to just end with three reasons for why this matters. First one, it matters that we can pick the winning team. Pick which team to, to be part of in our life. This isn't like the playground where we don't, you know, we get picked. I mean, it's kind of like that because Jesus picks us. But there's also a sense where we get to decide, okay, which team am I going to be part of? And we see, man, God, you win. I want to be part of your team. I want to be part of your team that wins at the end of history, and it's winning in the world right now. Um, it gives, it gives, it gives, this gives new meaning to, to church membership, really. That it's not just like, oh, man, I go to church because... I feel kind of guilty and I want to like ease my conscience or I have friends or I want to have friends or I'm lonely. Those are all good things. Those are all good reasons. Those are all things the church answers. But it's also to see like, man, my investment in a church community and following God, like it really makes a difference. Like there is nothing that, that makes a difference more in the world than following Christ in community with other people. And so as I really like prioritize the team, like the team meetings and the things that we're doing as a team, uh, I'm so excited about the group of us going to Summit this weekend because it's like, man, that's awesome. We have a great group that, that are signed up to go. And that's saying, you know what? Eddie's going to talk more about that in a minute. But saying, yes, man, we're, I want to be part of the winning team and I'm going to rearrange my life and do things that are difficult or have a little cost or uncomfortable. And that's just one example, but different things in our life where we're saying, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to prioritize a community because this community, working together, reaching people around us, that's the winning team that changes the world. So it matters so we can, we can pick the, the winning team. Um, it also matters because what we believe determines how we live. What we believe determines how we live. We won't work for the transformation of society if we don't believe that society can be transformed. If we think that the lanes are just merging to one and we just got to get over and we just got to try to escape, then we're not going to bring anything to the world around us. But if we believe that, man, the church, the churches in Manhattan are the best thing for Manhattan. And if we want to see change in our community, it's through God's people. Then we will work to see things transformed and we will see that happen. In Revelation 12, I just want to read this. This is in, in Revelation Last book in the Bible. The Apostle John was seeing a vision of, of heaven and things God was doing. And it says, he says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. So that's speaking of the devil. That's one of his titles, the accuser. That's actually what Satan means, is the accuser. So the, the accuser of the brothers has been thrown down. That's important for us to know. It's not just something that's going to happen in the future, but it's something that has already happened. 
through Jesus' death and resurrection. The accuser of the brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. So that's what he's doing. He's constantly talking to us and accusing us and telling us God's mad at us and telling us we're not good enough and telling us yada, yada, yada. We're on the outside. Whatever it is, you're, you're a loser. He accuses us, but he's been thrown down. In verse 11, they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. So John's writing to people who's, who are literally being persecuted and killed for their allegiance to Jesus. The audience of his letter was facing extreme difficulty. But he's saying, hey, among you are people who are overcoming because of the blood of the Lamb, because they believe in Jesus and what he did on the cross, and they've received a new nature from him. They're trusting in him, not just in themselves. They, the word of their testimony, because they believe in Jesus, they're speaking who Jesus is, and they're speaking truth instead of the other lies that are around them. And they're not loving their life so much as to, to shrink back from death. They're willing to even die because of their belief in what's true. And because of that, they're overcoming and they're changing the world around them. What we believe determines how we live and how we face difficult stuff. Last thing I want to say about why it matters is that optimism is a good thing. Man, it's good to be. I'd rather, I'd rather be optimistic than pessimistic, personally. I, I don't know about you, but it's just a lot more fun. And I'm not saying to be shallowly optimistic, like just, you know, optimism not based in reality. But we were made to live with joy, with hope, with confidence, with the belief that God is good, and he has won, and he's winning. And if we're not living with that sort of confidence then we're missing out on something. You know, it talks to other places in the Bible, talk about people who, who died for their faith. And it says they did that joyfully. Even the greatest sacrifice, people have done it with joy and confidence because they knew, God, you are using my life and even the difficult stuff, even dying, you are bringing something good through this. And I'm going to trust you. And, because, and you're worth it. You're worth it. You're doing this. And so optimism, God, God wants us to have a confidence. You know, I, I think, I don't know if I've ever lived in such a time where there's such a need for optimism. I just hear so much discouragement, so much gloom and doom, so much heaviness. And I think some of that, there's an appropriate lament, an appropriate looking at the brokenness of the world and, and feeling the pain. But beyond that, we need a deep confidence that God is good. He's on his throne. And the church wins in history. And as we have that optimism, we can be part of, of carrying that out. So, this is, I know, a lot of like, like high-level stuff, you know, like, man, what's history and what's God doing? Um, but it's really important that we're grounded with a view of the future, of where God is going, and the calling that throughout history, there have been people of God who saw that, God, you're doing something in the world, and I can be part of it, and it's going to matter, and it is mattering. And those are the people who change the world. And so today I just want to end with a couple of questions for us. Is, you know, are there places where, where you've believed a false narrative about the story of the world? 
other places where you believe the false narrative about the story of the world, where it's different than that God wins in history and the church wins in history. All right, we're actually looking at sometime later this in the next school year doing a, like a, a Saturday class, going into more detail about what the Bible teaches about what's called eschatology, the study of, of end times, and looking at some of the difficult passages and going into more detail. So, but doesn't, you don't have to have every question answered, but are there things we believe that are different than the overarching view that the church wins in history? Are there places, where, where do I need to change? Where do you need to change your, your thinking? Where are there beliefs that have gotten in that God is saying, hey, that's, that's not right. That's not the positive view I have. I want you to change that way of thinking and turn to me and believe me instead. And then where is God calling you to change your actions? Where is God calling you to, to change your lifestyle and your actions? To be part of the church winning in the world today. The church winning in history. I'm just going to pray and um, ask God to help us in this. So let's, let's pray together. Lord, I'm just so thankful that you are more powerful than everything. You're more victorious. You're, you're, you're victorious in every situation, in every time in history, in this time of history. Lord, we just thank you for your, your death and your resurrection that brought your victory. And Lord, thank you that you progressively bring that victory to us. Lord, that as we are in the battle, although it's tough, your victory is real. Lord, I just pray that you would help us. Lord, I, I ask for revelation to increase, that we would have a greater and greater understanding of your victory in the world and in our lives. Lord, I pray even for just specific areas that you may have already highlighted or you're highlighting right now or you're going to highlight in the, the days ahead where we see, man, this is where you want me to contend for your victory in the world. Lord, would you help us in those areas? Help us to see them, help us to say yes to them, and help us to be a part of seeing your kingdom expanding the world, whether it's bit by bit at times or whether it's by leaps and bounds. Lord, we, it's, we, we say yes to both of those ways that you work. And Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, may this be a year of, of us seeing your kingdom expand in powerful ways in our lives, in our community. Lord, may we see just many more people come to know you, many people set free from darkness, many people set free from shame and oppression and come into what you have for us and for them. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.